This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. He says, I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him. That he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's, if it's uh, a killing or whatever. You just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who are incarcerated right here at this institution. Uh, my name is Anthony, and I'm talking to Sky, who's down in Texas. How you doing, Sky? I'm good. How are you, Anthony? Oh, not too bad. I've got an interesting story that will mostly be the fella I'm talking about telling the story himself today, awesome. which is kind of exciting. Yeah. What, what's what been going on with you? Oh, not too much. Just in the middle of the semester, I got my first dose of the vaccine. Just got a couple more weeks, and then I'll be fully vaccinated, ready to take on the world, which not really. I'm still <laughs> a graduate student. But yeah, no, things are good. How about you? Well, same. I got my first dose last week and uh, went well, and I'm looking forward to hopefully things... Oh, please open up soon and, yeah. and uh, get back to normal. Right. And, yeah. I can't wait to hug my parents and not feel nervous, you know, and, right. and eat dinner with my friends and family mm-hmm. and everything else. Oh, I yeah. am I know. I that. didn't realize how much I enjoyed going out to, like, restaurants until I oh, haven't done it for, like, a year that? and a half. And now I'm like, oh, it turns out I really like that. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be hard not to cut loose. Like, right after the second <laughs> dose yeah. next month. Yeah, my best oh. friend and I are both like introverts. And, you know, when the lockdown first starts, it's like an introvert dream where it's just like, I I get to stay, like I'm forced to stay inside. Like, yes, <laughs> I am here for it. And then it turns out that even as introverts, that like you need human interaction and you really like right. it. So I'm ready. Listen, I've cross-stitched a lot of designs, so it's time <laughs> for me to get out. Oh, yeah. But let's get to it. I think you're starting this week. Yeah, yeah. So this week I am covering Mark Mallon Maxwell. And my sources are, of course, the Idaho Daily Statesman, Library of Congress Chronicling America, Ancestry.com, Findagrave.com, BeAShrinerNow.com, the Idaho State Archives Oral History Collection, and Wikipedia articles on Salina, Kansas, and the NYA. So today, I want to focus on a prison administrator, Mark Maxwell, and we've actually heard a lot from him on this podcast. And I want to tell his story, but mostly let him tell his own. I've used his oral history in so many past episodes, including several this past season. Just Paul Mahaffey and Ralph Golden, I used his oral histories extensively. He refers to them many times because they were kind of problematic prisoners here. And during the riot episodes last season, I used him several times. And even 
early in the very first season, I used him in the Raymond Stoden episode. His oral history is just an invaluable resource, and he worked at the penitentiary for so many years. But unlike most prison administrators we've discussed in the past, you know, he had a little bit of a different background, which I think helped propel the institution into the modern era with the new rehabilitative programs and opportunities for prisoners as he served as the right-hand man for Warden Lou Clapp. And, of course, Lou Clapp, he spent most of his life here at this institution as the head of the institution. And so we'll get through all of that momentarily here. So Mark Mallon Maxwell was born on February 16th, 1909 in Salina, Kansas. And Salina at that time was a major industrial center with several mills, a factory for carriages and wagons, and uh, home to the original jeans maker Lee. Mark's father, James, worked as a teamster and listed work on census records as odd jobs, while his mother, Helen, was a, actually a college graduate from Kansas Wesleyan College, which is still located in Salina, Kansas, after 134 years. And she actually majored in music. And she raised Mark and his four siblings, older brothers Leo, Donald, and Matthew, and an older sister named Margaret. His parents would actually have their sixth child, so Mark was number five, their sixth child James in 1914 in Salina before moving to Twin Falls, Idaho to farm in July 1919. And that's where I actually found the family in the 1920 census. The Maxwell family moved west to Parma, Idaho in Canyon County, kind of near Caldwell. In 1926, Mark was attending Parma High School and was elected vice president of the student body. And I gather from newspaper articles that he was a pretty popular and well-liked athlete. He played basketball, tennis, and halfback for the football team. You know what a halfback is, Sky? Halfbacks are on offense. Yeah. Correct. Um. Then that's all I know. Yeah. So they're they're basically a, a running back. So they they they're the ones who were running the ball up the field. I mean, you have to be strong, fast, and able to take you know, a beating by these giants on the defensive line. So you'd have to be a pretty big guy. It sounds like a perfect precursor to a job at a prison. Right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's You'd have to be pretty intimidating. And, you know, according to his draft card from 1940, he was 5 feet 11 inches tall. And, like, today I looked up the average size of running back. They're 6 feet tall and 210 pounds. So, you know, they aren't the biggest guys, but... They're they're tough. They're they're built to be able to run through some defenders who are you know twice their size. It's, it's easy to imagine he was pretty imposing in high school. And I found a bunch of articles about him playing and winning in every sport he played. He was a just a natural athlete, and uh, he actually received a scholarship to play basketball at the University of Idaho in 1928. But after he went up there, he didn't stay long. He had to actually return to Parma because his mom suffered a a severe heart attack. He returned from U of I, stayed in Parma for a while, and then in 1931, he was offered a football scholarship at the College of Idaho in Caldwell, which was just a short drive from his mother in Parma. So he accepted it. And while in college, he continued to play basketball and football. And I found one write-up that said that Mark was a triple threat for the C of I Yotes. He was the quarterback, the fullback, and the kicker. (laughs) He actually received his letters 
in December of 1931 and was picked for the second team for the Northwest Conference All-Star team as the halfback. The College of Idaho, they had this really strong team of 15 veteran lettermen going into the 1932 season, but unfortunately Mark actually sprained his ankle and had to take off the second half of the season. In the spring of 1933, a fellow named Gaines Bow, who, quote, passes out the milkshakes to the students, end quote, decided to run this competition for several basketball players, offering them free milkshakes for playing in a tournament. Mark, who played guard, refused and said he would, quote, give up basketball before playing for two milkshakes and one cake per game, what? end quote. Come on. So he, <laughs> he would not be bribed to play sports. He's just like, no, I'm not going to do yeah. this for you. What are you talking about? Good for him for being highly principled. If I was offered two right. milkshakes, I'd be like, sure, I'll play. I know, yeah, I would too. <laughs> I mean, one milkshake would be enough. Totally. <laughs> so in 1934, Mark finished up his schooling and had a final season of Coyote football at C of I. His photo was published at the beginning of the season with the following note, quote, Mark Maxwell, 186-pound fullback, is one of the veterans upon whom Coach Bassler depends for the success of the College of Idaho 11 this season. Maxwell, the only fourth-year man on the squad, is useful in backing up the line on the defense, blocking on the offense, and carrying the ball himself when a few yards are needed for first down, end quote. He was expected to be the star of the season, but just over a week later, he was sent to the hospital for undisclosed medical treatment. In November 1934, after being out most of the season for an injury, he played his last game in a Coyote uniform and won the game against Puget Sound after kicking an extra point. Quote, Mark Maxwell, veteran fullback who has been out for most of the season, was shot in to make the kick, which he did. He was not called upon for much heavy work due to his recent convalescence, end quote. Mark graduated from the College of Idaho in 1935, a star athlete. When he wasn't on the field, though, or on the court, or in the classroom during his college years, Mark actually worked as a night watchman for the Caldwell Police Department, working the graveyard shift from 2 a.m. to 8 a.m. and sleeping at the fire department most nights. Idaho Statesman journalist Sandra Forrester actually interviewed Mark about his time as an officer during Prohibition in the 30s in a story written July 6, 2005. Quote, as Maxwell tells it, he had a friend who worked for the sheriff's office and invited him to come on a night raid at a home on 16th Avenue and North near 5th Street. As his friend spoke, Maxwell realized the deputies were planning to raid his brother, then a cabinet and moonshine maker with five children. Maxwell took the police chief's car that afternoon, drove to Nampa, and told his brother. And then this is a quote from Mark. I threw the copper vat in Indian Creek about a mile out of Caldwell, he said. I was a kid. He was my brother. From then on until he was about 75 years old, he never drank and he raised his kids, end quote. <laughs> you know, when he was not the sole officer on duty for the Caldwell De Police Department at night, he was also very involved with the Elks Club and cleaned and maintained that in Canyon County. Uh, he was connected to several fraternal orders in his life and was a lifelong mason and later a shriner with connections to Elcora Shrine in downtown Boise. To become a shriner, a man must first become a mason. And according to BeAShrinerNow.com, the mission of Shriners International, like Freemasons, is foremost to, quote, 
be the premier fraternal organization for men of good character, provide attractive, quality programs and services for its members, their families, and their friends in a spirit of fun, fellowship, and social camaraderie, foster self-improvement through leadership, education, the perpetuation of moral values and community involvement, serve mankind through the resources of its philanthropy, Shriners Hospital for Children, end quote. And I feel like this describes Mark and his career like extremely well. Like this is kind of the soul of Mark is just self-improvement, self-betterment and camaraderie and companionship. And people that he worked with, they were also Masons and and later part of the the Shriners. Like Lou Clapp was a very uh, renowned local Mason as well. So this dedication, you know, helping others would be a, a core feature of his life and work. According to newspapers, Mark married his lifelong girlfriend, Frankie Wagner, after graduation on July 18, 1935. Frankie was the chief operator in the Wilder Telephone Office, and in 1934, she actually moved to Canyon County and worked at Falk's store in Caldwell. They had their honeymoon at the beautiful Payette Lake in McCall. Now, July 18, 1935 was the public marriage, but here is actually a saucy detail from Maxwell's obituary. So while at the College of Idaho, he was on a scholarship that forbid him to get married. Uh. Marriage would have nullified the scholarship. So the couple did it in secret. And apparently, Frankie had borrowed a car while Mark was still in school in 1932. And they drove to Baker, Oregon and got married in 1932, keeping it secret for three years. Wow. The public wedding occurred after Mark's graduation. So this is one of the few times that Mark actually, like, broke rules. <laughs> huh. Yeah. Man, I, have, I have so many questions, but probably many of which you will not have the answer for. That's a rule that's like, I'm not mad about you breaking that one. That's do it, man. Yeah. Love. And they were lifelong partners. Like, yeah. So it's it's like one of those sweet things. I don't know. I I like having my, like, little secrets with my wife. It was like... Just sweet little things that we have that, you know, I think that was special to them. And <laughs> I, I just felt like Michael Scott where he says, I really like inside jokes. I'd like to be a part of one someday. And so very much like <laughs> I like to That's hear it, about yeah. this romance. I'd like to have one one day. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. Uh, anyway. Well, so after the 1935 honeymoon, he actually returned to the college in September to help announce the first football game of the fall season. And by the end of that year, the couple actually moved back to Parma. Overall, Mark Maxwell was a dedicated student and athlete, and he served in the student body as vice president in high school, played positions like quarterback and guard in football and basketball that required him to direct and navigate other people quickly and effectively. And these skills helped to prepare him for his next job. Mark was hired as a history teacher and coach at Parma High School. <laughs> he was a super popular teacher right away. Quote, at their first class meeting of the year, the seniors chose Mark Maxwell as their advisor, end quote. And it's important to note that he also coached all of the sports teams there in Parma High School. He was a star athlete. Like his name was pretty prominent in Parma and at the College of Idaho. So Everybody knew this guy. He was just this tall, like, handsome, strong leader, you know. And uh, Frankie actually gave birth to their first child, a daughter, on October 4th, 1937. Their family was extremely social, 
so many write-ups in newspapers of them hosting bridge parties in Parma and, and different tea gatherings and things like that. In 1938, Mark continued as a coach and became the school principal in Parma. By September 1940, he was the coach, school principal, history teacher, and geometry teacher. <laughs> he was then elected the president of the Snake River Valley Schoolmasters Association. You know, he was regularly wearing all kinds of hats while umpiring, refereeing local college sports games, and being a new father. So, Jeez, did he, he have any free time? I don't think he did. I, I don't think, think he was you can. just so dedicated to, like, serving everybody and at all times like i i just i'm just curious like how that went at home (laughs) Mm because i think that frankie you know she was kind of strapped at home but she was also part of of the fraternal orders the daughters of Mm -hmm. the nile masonic order you know so Mm -hmm. they were both just really connected to the community and to other sociable clubs it was around this time that Mark actually also started to pick up golf and started competing in golf tournaments, which is something that he would do throughout his whole life. Uh, on December 7th, 1941, the Japanese made a surprise attack on American troops at Pearl Harbor. And like many Americans, Mark Maxwell let go of his personal career and devoted his work to helping the war effort. So Mark quit all of these jobs and started working for the National Youth Administration, or the NYA, in 1941. And this was a New Deal agency sponsored by President Franklin Roosevelt that aimed at providing both educational and work opportunities during the Great Depression to young men and women between 16 and 25 years old. Specifically, the people that Mark Maxwell had been working with for several years in high schools. And it allowed the younger generation to work part-time jobs, doing everything from construction to janitorial work and cafeteria work at their schools, hoping to keep them in school and earning their education instead of dropping out early and fighting for jobs with the rest of the country's population. This provided them both an education as well as vocational training and the opportunity to bring money home to the family. The NYA was originally part of the Works Progress Administration, the WPA, aimed at helping everyone within society, including a very progressive division called the Division of Negro Affairs. In 1939, the NYA moved from the WPA to the Federal Security Agency, and the war in Europe had begun, and you know there was a pressure for as many young people as possible to develop skills and earn their education. And when the United States entered the war, many NYA-aged Americans joined the effort And in 1942, the NYA actually moved to the War Manpower Commission. And it was obvious most of the work was directed at aiding the war effort. So the NYA was dissolved in 1943. But overall, it had helped over 4 million youths succeed with full educations, vocational training, and jobs to help their families during the Depression. And uh, Mark carried the torch from the NYA next to the Navy. In 1942, he became a chief petty officer and recruiting officer stationed in Boise, Burley, and Ohio, of all places, for the United States Navy. He actually traveled through Idaho and recruited students as radio technicians. And on November 29, 1942, a story showed Idaho's November Navy recruiting numbers with 382 enlisted to date and 286 balanced to go. 
The Statesman article stated, quote, Chief Specialist Mark Maxwell of the Boise Main Station of the Navy Recruiting Service in Idaho pointed out Saturday that the greatest opportunity in radio technician recruiting since the inception of the program will be presented current to mid-year graduating high school classes. Chief Maxwell, popular southwestern Idaho educator and athletic director prior to his enlistment in the Navy, is directing radio technician enlistment in this state, end quote. So, yeah, he's trying to enlist these young students to be radio technicians for the war effort. And then there are these fascinating little articles in the Statesman that we've kind of talked about, the inquisitive cameraman in which this photojournalist actually stopped citizens on the street and asked them questions. Mm. He wrote down answers and snapped a photo for the next day's newspaper. And he would award a dollar to the person who came up with a question for the column, which I th- I'm like, oh, man, I hope they bring that back someday. That's such a cool, mm-hmm. interesting thing. <laughs> on February 14th, 1943, This photojournalist crossed paths with Mark Maxwell on the street and asked him, what do you think of the 48-hour work week? And Mark, wearing his Navy uniform, responded, quote, during the war emergency, we should all have a 48-hour work week. As long as the armed forces are doing their very best, the civilian population should do the same. Suppose a man on the firing line should quibble about working 48 hours. The people in occupied countries are working 60 and 70 hours, end quote. Mark would be honorably discharged in 1945. And immediately after that, he continued serving other people. He redirected his effort to the Veterans Hospital, and he focused on helping World War II veterans injured in the war effort, focused on the men blinded in the conflict. In his pastime, he continued working with the Freemasons and Elks on several charitable events and continued his work as an umpire and referee. And I actually found a photo of him and the Idaho Statesman refing a game for some high school students on August 4th, 1951. And he towers over these kids. He's just such a big, big man. This was kind of the calm before the storm for Mark Maxwell. Because in 1953, Governor Len Jordan appoints him to the Idaho Board of Corrections, a position he would hold for 14 years. And I will let Mark tell most of the rest of this story through this oral history he took with Kathy Dodson on October 2nd, 1981 at the Old Pen. And I won't go into too much of the prisoner stories that he mentions. I'll save those for future episodes. So you'll be very familiar with his voice when when he pops up in, in future episodes. But I want you to hear, you know, what his job entailed Basically, Kathy began by asking Mark how he started his career at the penitentiary. Let's take a listen. To be associated with the penitentiary, I probably uh, got acquainted with Mr. Clapp through some recreational activities and maybe through the uh, Elcora Shrine. And uh, uh, unbeknownst to me, he had talked to the governor about... uh, possibility of my being appointed on the board and at that time they had the original three members of the board and the gentleman that that was up for appointment was Mr. Schofield and they were having difficulties with Mr. Schofield on many different phases of um, activity and he and Mr. Schofield apparently was having a good deal of trouble of getting along with the uh, inmates and this the job he had was vice chairman of the board of corrections and uh, 
under that program, he was supposed to have the rehabilitation program and the recreational and the social affairs program with the inmates. And because of this apparent animosity that built up there, why they had decided that they didn't want him reappointed and talked to the governor, who was Governor Jordan at that time. That the warden had talked to yes. him? Oh, okay. Yes. Mr. Clapp, the warden, had talked to the governor. And Mr. Fales was the secretary of the board at that time. I'm sure Mr. Fales had talked to him. Uh, also, and I don't know that at that time that I had ever met Mr. Fales, but anyway, uh, along in November of 52, and I think it was around Thanksgiving time, 52, the governor called me at my place of, of work at that time and asked me if uh, I could uh, come to his office for a visit over a matter that he wanted to discuss with me. So I said yes, and I was only two or three blocks from the courthouse, from the state house. So I went over and met Governor Jordan, and that's probably the first time I'd really ever officially met him. He uh, asked me if I would consider or would be interested or knew anything about the penitentiary, and if I would be if I would be interested or consider an appointment on the board. And I said, Well, I didn't know what the work entailed, and I didn't know whether I would be interested or not. Didn't know what my family would think about it, but that I would um, talk it over with them and try to do some checking on the penitentiary and uh, get back to him. So I did discuss it with my family, and they weren't very enthused about it. Uh, but I talked to further with Mr. Clapp and Mr fails and other people, guard personnel who were, were here at the penitentiary and decided that I'd possibly be interested in it. And I went back to the governor with that uh, information. Sometime during the month of December, I officially got an appointment from the governor to be associated and a, a member of the board as of January 1st, 1953. As a member of this three-man board, Mark knew he'd hold the position for at least six years, and Warden Lutclap explained to Mark what the board did and handed him the Idaho Law Book, which broke down the role. And they held a meeting, and Warden Clapp and Mr. Fales voted on Mark to be vice chairman of the board. You know, he didn't start as secretary. He started as the second-hand man, like not even knowing really what his job entailed. We carried on. Uh, with Mr. Clapp as chairman of the board, or me as vice chairman of the board, and Mr. Fales as secretary of the board. Now, at that time, the law pretty much divided our work. And as vice chairman of the board, I was in the capacity of assistant warden. If the, if the chairman of the board was out of the state or away from this institution, I was uh, next in command and in complete charge. And that was accepted, and certainly by Mr. Fales, he didn't want to take on any responsibility. Mr. Fales, the secretary of the board, took care of the records of our board meetings and so forth, but his duties entailed the supervision of the probation and parole department. And, of course, he didn't do anything with the parole department without the 
without the consent of the board. I mean, we we uh, determine the policies and the procedures and so forth of the uh, pro department. Then the board, at the same time, although we were very much dominated by Mr. Clapp, who was a very forceful individual, uh, still uh, we were the ones uh, that determined the policies and the procedures for um, for uh, the operation of the penitentiary. Mark and his family actually moved to a house at the prison farm, which was located across Warm Springs Avenue, where the Warm Springs Golf Course now sits. We're, when I moved into Warden's residence, our kids were pretty well grown at that time. But of course, my kids grew up with the inmates. Because I lived on the penitentiary farm for six or seven years before this as vice chairman of the board. See, the penitentiary farm is down where the golf course is. The Warm Springs Golf Course. Yeah. I, we had a house down there, and I lived down there in that house uh, when, my, when my boy was in junior high school. Well, uh, we had no problems, and down there, of course, we had an inmate down there every day, and took care of the lawn and stuff like that, but uh, the inmates we had were mostly uh, inmates that had uh, some kind of sex crime behind them. They were very good to my family and my kids. Uh, when a new one would come down, why, uh, it would take a few days for maybe any of them, my wife particularly, probably to adjust to them, but they, were, they didn't have too much contact with them because they, they worked around the yard, but uh, planted flowers or, or uh, put in a garden or something like that. They liked to come down there because that get, got them away from the penitentiary. We had a boy from Jerome down there uh, that has been a lifelong friend, and he was a homosexual. Uh, Howard was uh, one of the nicest kids you'll ever meet uh, around the family. He taught school, and I know he wasn't a non-educated guy. Listeners of our last season will remember that Lou Clapp was not present during two of the three uprisings that occurred during his time as warden, which left Mark Maxwell at the helm to quell violence in the yard during the guard hostage uprising in 1958 and the sit-down strike in 1966. Mark's daily duties, including reviewing incoming prisoners and determining how to classify them, where they should be housed, and reviewing cases as prisoners came up for parole or pardon. And Mark was the prison administrator who interviewed Raymond Snowden and actually gave him the Minnesota multiphasic test in which Raymond opened up and told Mark that he had ridden his motorcycle through Colorado. Mm. But Ray had told the FBI he had never been in Colorado before. Mm -hmm. So... You know, agents were trying to link Ray to these murders of young women in Colorado, and th- there's still some question, and I think there's some more investigations that could happen now. Mark didn't really have an issue witnessing Raymond's execution, but it was a different story when he witnessed one in Carson City, Nevada, on August 23, 1961. Thane Archibald was this young fella who held up a gas station worker in Livermore, California in 1959. The 17-year-old boy named Larry Waters was working, and Thane actually, after robbing him, took this 17-year-old hostage. He then drove to Nevada and forced Waters to hike up this rocky peak above the Truckee River near Reno with his hands tied behind his back. Thane then shot the boy twice at close range and tossed his body down the embankment. He drove off but was captured in Baker, Oregon after holding up another service station and 
he was brought back to Nevada and convicted in the gas chamber in Nevada. And Mark actually went down and witnessed this because they were discussing possibly changing the method of execution. Mm. We tried to execute it over in, um, in uh, Carson City that I saw. He was a good-looking kid, about 19 years old. Of course, there was a lot of feeling about that over there that he shouldn't be executed, you know. And, uh, and that was, over there, was impressed me a lot, a lot worse than this one did because he was executed at sunrise in the morning. Frankie and I went over to Carson City, went over to Reno, and I stayed in a motel and went to bed. And I got up at 4 o'clock, pitch black in Reno, and drove out to Carson City. Boy, I'm telling you, that Carson City was... There were cars all over. See, this guy killed him, a 15- or 16-year-old boy. Brought him up from California and shot him three or four times right out of uh, Reno somewhere in a pile of rocks. And this kid's dad was there and uh, wanted to drop the pill. He wanted to see the execution, and they weren't going to let him. And they had that thing really patrolled over there to and checked everybody going in and out of the roadways going up to the penitentiary and so forth. But it was a it was a terrible execution. I think hanging was by far the best. What uh, why why were you a witness to that one? Oh, we were talking about changing the method of execution here and I I was a good friend of the wardens and he'd asked me to come over and I don't know why I went. Would that, would that, Curiosity. what year do you remember? I'd say 61, probably. So yeah, I'd, would, have to, I'd have to look it up. So it was after the execution? It was after this one, yeah. It was after this I mean, he witnessed two executions and was also here for other pretty horrible things. But kind of interestingly, he knew the infamous Harry Orchard, who spent a life sentence in this penitentiary for assassinating former Governor Frank Stunenberg. And I promise we will cover Harry's story on this podcast in the future. I'm just waiting. There's going to be a special episode. Mark only knew Harry at the very end of his life, though. And I have to warn you that some of the following isn't the most flattering of Harry Orchard. Do you remember the day that Harry died? Yeah, were you there? Well, I was here at the institution, probably went into the hospital when he died. I think I went into the hospital when he died. What was the general atmosphere of feeling when Harry died? Was he, you know, what, what did the other inmates think of him at that <clears throat> point? Well, uh, when he died, uh, the staff and people who worked around the hospital were very happy because he was a pain in the neck in the hospital. He dirtied his bed and they had to feed him and they had to do this and do that for him and he, he was old and senile. He uh, played with himself sexually and uh, they had not much respect for him in there. There were some inmates that knew Harry uh, Harry helped, uh, helped a lot of young inmates out prior to my coming here. I've, I've had stories um, from uh, inmates that said Harry advised them and talked to them. 
and he was a, a pretty devout religious man all the time. I think he was here, particularly uh, probably within after he served a few years, if not uh, right after he got here. He he had money if he liked somebody and they needed a school book or something. He would buy them a school book or whatever they needed. You know, the one boy that that particularly I think liked Harry, and I think he helped him, and I think Harry probably liked uh, Mike Foley. I think he probably liked Mike better than any other inmate in the institution. And Mike came in when he was 16 years old, or maybe 15, 16. Mike came in for murder on a life sentence and was supposedly killed his mother and a brother. So Mark also dealt with the ladies in the women's ward, and he felt actually pretty proud about the lack of recidivism for the women. Mm-hmm. How about the women here? Do you, uh, do you remember much about the women's ward or anything happening there? <laughs> oh, sure. I remember all of it. <laughs> well, the women were, uh, I thought, a good example of uh, phonology and so forth. It was a tough place for him to stay, but, you know, for years, uh, we had women here, and uh, when one of them left penitentiary, she never came back as a parole violator. Exactly. <laughs> they got rights. It was a long time before we ever had a woman come back here as a parole violator. Another one of my little... Mark talks a lot about Verna Keller, better known as Tarzan, who Sky will definitely uh, yeah. tell her story in a future episode. And we learn a lot about prisoner routines from Mark as well. The guards that had tower duty, did they carry weapons that all the time that they were in the towers? Okay. They always had a rifle. A rifle, okay. And uh, <clears throat> would that have been a 24-hour guard in the, each of the towers? No. All the time I was here, and I think even, uh, even up until the time I left, inmates were fed... Uh, in the afternoon about 4 o'clock, or maybe a little before 4. By 4.30, everybody was locked in their cells. And in the summertime, that was damn hot. You know, you could go in those cells and fry eggs. But they, they all were locked in their cells, I'm sure, by 4.30 in the afternoon. And um, stayed there till 7.30, 8 o'clock the next morning. That was a lot of cell time, which people don't really realize. But during this time, the uh, guards' towers were cut down to only two. We manned that one over there and this one over here. So they'd be like the far southwest one and the far northeast one. So after Lou Clapp left the position of warden to become Idaho's Secretary of State, Mark actually took over his position, and he and Frankie moved into the house that Clapp had built. And it seemed that Frankie was never quite as comfortable living on prison grounds as Mrs. Clapp was. Well, I'll I'll tell you to be frank. I think Mrs. Clapp was a different kind of woman than my wife was. My wife was never happy down in the warden's residence. I don't think she ever relaxed at all. And we had two or three inmates down there. We, at that time, we moved down. When I became warden, we moved down here in, in the warden's chest. And in the brick house. Yeah, and, and Frankie never never did relax. 
and uh, she never assumed the responsibility of ordering stuff. She relied on the inmates, and we had an inmate that Clappett had uh, off and on for 15 years as a, as a cook and houseboy, and, and we had even Harold was a, was a jewel. I mean, he was as good a cook as there was in the state of Idaho. He was a petty thief, he wrote checks, and he was a con artist. He loved all of our kids. All of our kids knew him and still know him, and we still run into Harold, and uh, just like one of the family, you know. But Harold uh, was basically an alcoholic, too. He ordered a lot of things that never got to my table. Uh, for instance, I know they ordered a case of uh, pure vanilla extract, and I know where it went but none of it was ever used in the warden's residence. That last quote would end up biting Warden Mark Maxwell right in the butt. So, you know, he was also a new warden, and prisoners saw this opportunity to test his power. He just did not quite have the authority over the grounds that Lou had, and he was tested repeatedly immediately after he took the helm. Shortly after I took over, I know in May we had six of those devils run away from the farm out there together in a car, and they wrecked a, the, the chief of police's car in Vancouver, Washington, run into a police. They had a roadblock set up, and they ran into the roadblock, demolished his car, and a lot of things. You know, those things all are pretty rough to go through. A lot of people think they're irresponsible, you know, and run in a place. But anyway, uh, I got the warden from Colorado in here at a meeting. They stayed down to the residence. There was an ex-warden from Colorado and the warden from Colorado. And the ex-warden was on the Board of Corrections at that time in Colorado. And they were both good friends of mine. And I got them to come in here. They stayed here about two or three days. And went through the penitentiary and made a lot of recommendations to me and suggestions and stuff. Unfortunately, these recommendations and suggestions wouldn't go into effect quick enough. He did not last long as warden. He actually resigned from the Idaho Board of Corrections in August 1968, but remained as a fill-in until his last official day on September 11, 1968. Kathy asked him why he left, and he said he was mostly, it was mostly due to issues with the politics of the job. The Republican governor was out of the state. The Democrats, and Lou was an art Democrat, they uh, convinced Williams that he should resign from being Secretary of State. And Lou was appointed Secretary of State. Lou Clapp went to Secretary of State, which then left a vacancy on the board. Now, there was a lot of speculation around the state about who was going to be, of course, Lou had been here since 1943, probably until 67. My, my last official day at the penitentiary as chairman of the board was September 11, 1968. Uh, although <clears throat> I resigned in August, I'm not sure when in August, and I, I didn't, um, after I resigned, I took a leave of absence 
day I um, left, which was September 11th, 68. And uh, I've, I've always figured that I was warden for about 13 months, so I think I took over maybe April okay. of 67 to September of 68. And that's when I left. Why, why did you leave? I had trouble with the governor. Oh. <laughs> you haven't been here very long. No. Um, Did you do anything after that in uh, in the field of corrections at all no, after your experience not, here? Not particularly, no. Just a little private investigative work or something. No, I left here in 68. Um, I was under a great deal of pressure when I left. Uh, I was down to about 185 pounds, and I had a boy, um, and I was trying to think his name, and I'm sure it's uh, Brink, B-R-I-N-K, commit suicide in one house here. And then I had trouble with the governor, and um, the penitentiary underwent an uh, investigation by a special group, the uh, that the governor brought in. That was uh, Samuelson, Don Samuelson, brought those in. I don't know. There, there was a lot of things. I, um, I'm a little paranoid about some of them. Uh, I, uh, somebody um, was really giving me a bad time, and I, uh, uh, although I'm friendly with Orville Stiles, I think Orville kind of gave me a, a bad deal with the governor. See, the Orville was, uh, of course, he's an ordained minister, I think. At least he's very religious. And Samuelson was very religious. And they uh, spent a lot of time together at prayer breakfasts and other things. And I don't know that Orville did all the damage, but there was a lot of them. Of course, after Lou left, I'll admit, it was, it was tough around here because I tried to change some things. At that time, we try, I did away with um, solitary confinement, the hole in Siberia. And we had this five house then, and we were having so much trouble in five house. We had about 22 inmates locked up down there in solitary confinement, and they, uh, they just raised hell 24 hours a day. Noise. Beat on the bars, hollered and screamed. We, we were out of money. We were, our budget had been depleted, uh, which uh, I think was the, the bookkeeper's fault. He had, he'd been here a long time under Lou, under Mr. Clapp, and, and uh, he assumed a lot of authority and was, um, he was very um, much in control of money. And uh, I'll admit that I never really got real familiar with uh, budgets and so forth. And I relied on, his name was Mac, I relied on Mac 100%. But I know now that Mac, if Mac didn't want something done, he'd just tell me, well, we're out of money, Mark, we can't do this, you know. Later he stated, no, I didn't feel I was really having a great deal of trouble with personnel, but I did have a feeling that uh, that I was being accepted and treated different than Clapp was, because Clapp ran the penitentiary. And I may have made a mistake early when I 
personnel together in this room right across over here and talk to them about things that we wanted to accomplish in care and treatment of the prisoners and security and so forth. And I, I gathered around me four or five of what I figured was the top men. And the top one, as far as I was concerned, was Bruce Carey. But I think the captain of the yard, which I, I can't say his name, not that make any difference, and, and Fred Abrams, and some of those guys, they thought that they should be having more say than they were. And Fred got all wrapped up in a kind of a union idea, I think. Uh, at least he, he was claimed he was working, you know, for the inmates trying to get, or the guards trying to get more money for him and, and so forth. And of course we were on a tight budget, doing the best we could, we thought, for him. And, and uh, I, I'm sure I had some people that were giving me a, a bad time with the governor. And I thought that I had a very good working arrangement and a very good relationship with the governor myself. The governor was elected in November and he came out here in between the time he was elected and the time he took office, which was probably maybe no December, November or December. And he had lunch with me and we had the guards quarters over there in the dining room over there and we went over there for lunch. I didn't want to stay anyway. I mean I was I had it. I was ready to leave. Well, the doctors told me. I, I was a damn fool because I should have left here under a medical disability. And uh, I was 57 years old at the time. And uh, I got screwed on my retirement from the state. Uh, due to my uh, emotional status, but my doctor and an attorney told me that the doctor told me, Mark, if you don't get out of there, you're going to have that quick black foot or someplace. You just can't take it. You can't. Well, um, and you'd been here a long time. I'd been here a long time. And things were piling up on me, and I was kind of ready to leave. So did Stiles become the warden right after you? Then? I don't think he did right after. Uh, I think Doc House was for a short time. And then Stiles came in. I, 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 you know, I just... Uh, uh, resigned from the whole thing and left. I mean, I didn't stick around. But. Do you think there was any motivation by Stiles to do that so that he could get that job? Because yeah. he eventually had it. Yeah, I think so. Oh. Yeah, I think he had it. I think I, I can't help but feel that he had a lot to do with it, and I think Fred, Fred Abrams had a lot to do with it too. But then Stiles wasn't here much oh, no. longer either. No, he wasn't here very long. No, I think he was only here two years after that. I don't know if he was here that long or not, yeah. but he had nothing but trouble. He, he had worse time than I did, I know that, over other things, you know. So it was mostly politics that ended things for Mark, and, you know, mounting pressure and mental and physical strain that he was going through. But the hinge point was when Governor Samuelson actually asked for the prison administrators to stop using, or in his words, abusing the commissary, which the board was actually legally allowed to freely get groceries from to supplement their income. So they could ask for, you know, some pork chops from the prison commissary, and they were legally allowed to have that. But there were some problematic charges, like he mentioned above. Governor Samuelson actually asked for the members of the board to, to resign, and Chairman Mark Maxwell and James Nally outright quit. 
He served as warden for 16 months, and in a press conference later, he would admit that he should have been a little bit more strict on the commissary items that were ordered by prisoners to go to his house. Quote, the former warden, 58, said to some extent the large withdrawals attributed to him were the result of maintaining a cook and gardener, both inmates, in his home. Sometimes, he said, he fed as many as three inmates. He also cited the fact that he had visitors from other prison institutions in his home. Maxwell said he did not feel the commissary privileges were particularly abused by board members, but felt there had been probably been some padding of accounts by prisoners. And he says, uh, Mrs. Maxwell should have taken more control. I'm sure some items that were charged out of the warden's residence were not received there. The convicts may have pilfered some of this food. I should have caught it and run it down, end quote. And later on this September 22nd, 1967 article in, in the Nampa's Idaho Free Press newspaper, he tells reporters, quote, he could not recall having withdrawn 57 tenderloins in July of this year, as was shown on the prison audit conducted by the State Department of Administrative Services. Commenting on a charge of lack of overall direction and control, Maxwell said, this is probably true. But he pointed out that was one of the reasons he asked the legislator to separate the responsibility of chairman of the board and warden so that there'd be two separate positions, end quote. Saul Clark actually wrapped up his tenure through the year and asked not to be reelected. And this was result in the even more temporary wardenship of, of Chaplain Orville Stiles soon after, and then the final warden, Raymond May, who would actually oversee the transfer of the prisoners to the current institution in Idaho. So in all, Mark had empathy for the prisoners. He witnessed some ghastly things, suicides, executions, riots, attacks, but he seemed to care for the prisoners who, you know, most of them were, were taking the steps to rehabilitate themselves. Kathy asked him the following. In all of your years here, just reflecting a little bit, what, what would you have seen as probably the biggest adjustment or problem that inmates would have coming in? What was their biggest problem? Being thrown in with uh, the men and the lack of our ability to segregate it was the worst problem. It's, it was a scary thing for an inmate to come in, and, and some of them couldn't take it. They just couldn't adjust to it. Just like a, a person that is afflicted with claustrophobia or something, you know, they just uh, went to pieces. Now, they could, they could probably adjust a little bit. When we brought inmates in, we at first, maybe even for as much as a month, but a few days, 10 days, or Something kept them in one house, and we they, we didn't let them mingle in the uh, with the population. But they would learn enough in that ten days about what was going on. So after his resignation, Mark took a brief break before getting a job working for the Washington State Welfare Department for five years. He finally retired and focused on family, friends, and golf tournaments. He was interviewed for this oral history in 1981, and would continue to take part sharing stories until his death. In June 2002, he actually joined other College of Idaho alumni for all year's football reunion, and he and Paul Heyman had played in the college in the 30s together, and they were the, the oldest fellows there, and this event had like a cocktail hour and a collection of historic photos and video clips throughout the evening. 
And they continue to be parts of uh, local fraternal organizations and sorority organizations throughout their lives. And uh, Frankie died on September 14th, 1997, at 85 years old. And 10 years later, Mark Maxwell died on December 3rd, 2007, at 98 years old. His obituary highlights a life dedicated to public service and hard work, and he was an extremely dedicated man, even calling for donations to the Shriners Hospital for Children and the Boise Elks in lieu of flowers at his funeral. A celebration of life was held at the Elkhorst Shrine for him in downtown Boise, and they were buried in Canyon Hill Cemetery in Caldwell, Idaho. Their shared headstone has a heart in the middle with their true wedding date, July 18, 1932. And Frankie has an emblem of the Daughters of the Nile, Concordant Women's Organization of Freemasons, and next to Mark's name is a Shriner's emblem. And that is a story about a prison administrator, Mark Maxwell, whose name we we continue to pass as we discuss the 1950s and 60s as he served on the uh, board and eventually as the vice chairman and as the chairman, as the warden of the Idaho State Penitentiary. Very dedicated man, and it was just fascinating to to follow his, his life and career. Very interesting. That is a way to shake things up, and uh, maybe one of these days I'll have to do uh, Lulu Rowan, who I actually don't even know that much about. So, um, And it's great that we have his oral history and we have her oral history, so um, maybe one of these days we'll, we'll throw her in the mix. But very good that job, as usual. In 2021, the Idaho State Historical Society is celebrating 140 years of service to Idahoans as the trusted source in protecting Idaho's historical places and artifacts and sharing its stories. As a part of the commemoration, the Old Idaho Penitentiary is committed to bringing you 140 unique stories about the people who worked, lived, and served time at the site through this podcast and the events and programs scheduled throughout the year. Capturing 140 Storytelling Program offers a unique glimpse at lives filled with hope and despair and the enduring triumphs and tragedies at Idaho's only penitentiary from 1872 to 1973. Stay tuned. Who are you covering today, Sky? Hey, so I am talking about number 11297, Janet Elaine Brzezicki. Um, Yeah. So, again, she's not one of our big ones, but she came in with a very, very full social history. And so I there and she actually she lived quite a life, to be quite honest with you. So so sources, Inmate File, Daily Statesman articles, Newspaper.com articles, Ancestry.com records, a page called Historical Mountain Home at mountain-home.us, elmorecounty.org, Mountain Home Chamber of Commerce at townsquarepublications.com, the Mountain Home Air Force Base History at mybaseguide.com, the Mountain Home Historical Museum.com, www.sbtribes.com, the ISHS reference series on Rattlesnake Station, the federal bonding program at bonds4jobs.com, and then uh, just some brief stuff on Wikipedia. So you may be able to guess where this has taken place, but um, <laughs> so... Uh, Janet was born Janet Elaine Kildow in Laramie, Wyoming on July 8th, 1942, which is actually about 69 years 
to the day of my birthday. Um, I was also born on July 8th, so birthday twins. Her father was Edwin Wallace Kildow, and her mother was Pauline J. Tulk Kildow. Her father was born in Burton, Kansas, and he was actually a railroad conductor for the Union Pacific Railroad, which was a very common occupation in Laramie. Laramie is very much a railroad town. Janet was the second of five kids. Her older sister, Harriet Catherine, is also known as Kathy, was a year older than she was. And then she had a younger brother, Harry, a younger sister, Charlotte, who was about five years younger, and a younger brother, Thomas, who was about six years younger. And Harry was only about 18 months younger than her. So Kathy, Janet, and Harry were pretty close together. And then Charlotte and Thomas sort of came in quite a few years later. So upon the time of her intake, she said that she felt particularly close to Harry, her brother right beneath her, and Harry saw her second husband as a kind of role model, which she thought was a mistake, and we'll get into that. She also said that she thought Harry was, quote, browbeaten, run down, end quote, by her father. She did not have as close of a relationship with her sisters. She said she was jealous, and she felt rivalry toward Kathy, and so they were never really close. She described Charlotte as, quote, a spoiled brat, end quote. Hmm. Um, her relationship with Thomas, her youngest brother, was positive, but she said that was partially, like, Thomas just had a, a more positive demeanor because he, it seemed like he was more well-liked by his father than Harry was. She said that she felt ambivalent toward her father, but had negative feelings toward him when she was younger because he used to, quote, rule the home with an iron hand, end quote, but that he settled down once Charlotte was born. And so, again, there is that large chunk of time that, you know, Charlotte is five years younger than she is. And so there is sort of a larger chunk of time that he uh, has between sort of the first set of kids and the second. And, and so he kind of settled down a little bit. She said that she was closer to her mother than any of the rest of her siblings, which was a source of rivalry between her and Kathy. And there is some evidence that the home may not have been super stable. She claimed that her mother tried to complete suicide twice because of her father. And uh, she also stated that her mother was in fairly poor health for Janet's late teenage years, but their parents, her parents did remain married. Janet herself didn't feel, when she came in, she didn't feel that she was necessarily religiously inclined. Her mother was affiliated with the Salvation Army, and her father's family was associated with the Methodists. She said that she attended both services growing up, but neither parents were consistent attendees at either, and so she didn't cling to any of those. Janet was not a troubled child per se, but she probably wasn't the easiest child to raise either. Her father said of her, quote, she has a tendency to do anything she wants with no regard for the consequences, knowing full well that what she's doing is wrong. She has no fear of laws or conventions, end quote. The first sign of trouble was in third grade when she took two bicycles from school, leaving one in front of a random house and the other in an alley. She said she did it, quote, because she had learned to ride her cousin's bicycle and wanted to practice more, end quote. So, I mean, third grade, you're eight years old, you're still sort of learning the difference between right and wrong. And so it doesn't seem that she did this to be malicious when you're learning something, you get excited to do it more and to practice. You know, she did get in trouble for that. In October 1954, at 12 years old, Janet was admitted to the Wyoming State Hospital in Evanston, Wyoming, for a 60-day observation by order of the judge of the 2nd Judicial District. And she had been sent there after stealing things from school lockers and running away twice with her sister Kathy. 
This was an account given by uh, the authorities. It said, quote, They were walking along the highway when people in a car picked them up and asked them where they lived and began turning around to take them home. They jumped out of the car and started down the road again. They were later picked up by the highway patrol. She states she enjoyed this experience and that it was fun. The second time in running away, she got 15 miles from home on a bicycle before she was picked up, end quote. And then this was written by the authorities when she, you know, on her her time in the hospital. And this is what they said of her, quote, her concepts of her acts are poor, admits petty larceny, pilfering and shrugged her shoulders when asked why, stating that she does not know. Questioned whether or not she was in need of the articles taken from the school lockers, said no, and denied having difficulties with the individuals that she stole from. She's unable to profit from experience and no doubt will be in future conflict with civil authorities. She appears somewhat dependent on her mother, is a bit indifferent regarding her father, who frequently is away from home due to his type of work. She resorts to pathological lying. Emotionally, is quite superficial and immature and utilizes the same for immediate gains. She is resentful of authoritative figures and on one or two occasions here when censured for her behavior, assumed a belligerent attitude. Her insight is very superficial and judgment is constricted. She is able to differentiate right from wrong and is responsible for her actions, end quote. She is only 12. Like, again, you're still in this... She admits that she knows that stealing from lockers is wrong and she's not doing it to be malicious and she gets some sort of thrill from doing things that she's not supposed to. But when you're 12, like, you're still figuring things out. You know what I mean? So, yes, like, you're immature and you're probably going to be a little bit superficial emotionally. Like, you haven't had time to develop being in touch with yourself in terms of your emotions and obviously your brain is not fully developed with reason and things like that. So... So she was sent there in October 1954, and then in December 1954, she was released back to her family's home, but that was actually soon considered unsuitable, so she was sent to live with her paternal grandfather, Harry M. Kildow, in Aztec, New Mexico. But she didn't really like it there, so she ran away, and so because of that, she was returned to her parents' home uh, back in, in Wyoming. Then two years later, on May 8th, 1956, Janet and Kathy were both sent to the Wyoming Girls' School at Sheridan, Wyoming, for truancy. While she was there, she attended the Hilltop High School, which was the school, I think, uh, associated with that campus. And there she finished the last semester of 10th grade, and she had actually done her 9th and Uh, So she had done ninth grade and the first semester of 10th grade at Laramie High School. And for my Laramie people, go Plainsmen. Um, (laughs) So so she finished her last semester of 10th grade while she was at that Wyoming girls school. She said that she liked school, at least through eighth grade, and she got good grades. She had a B plus average and she attended the girls school for about 21 months. She left on February 19th, 1958. So not quite a full two years, but she didn't actually finish school because she returned home and she, you know, it would have been time to go back to school, but she did not go back to school. So while she was living at home, she met a young man named Bill Blair, who was 15 and Janet was just 16. And so the reason they met was because Bill's father lived in Laramie and his mother lived in Las Vegas. So he was spending time with his father with this joint custody for part of 1958. And throughout their time together, at the end of it, Janet ends up pregnant. And um, 
So again, so young. Both of them are so young. So her father said that Janet left home to get married to Bill on December 27th, 1958. Janet, however, says the marriage didn't happen until April 18th, 1959 in Tijuana, Mexico. I could not find a marriage record to corroborate either story. But regardless, at some point, on September 1st, 1959, her son, Brett Wayne Blair, was born. Then, uh, in August 1960, Bill is just 17, which is so crazy to me that there is essentially, you know, I think uh, in August she would have been 18. He was 17. So these are teenagers who are married. They're raising a baby. But Bill's 17. He is a teenage boy. And so he steals some dynamite and he sells it to some people who are working at a mine in Laramie. And so because of that, he is sent to the Wyoming Industrial School in Warland, Wyoming. Um, And maybe because of this, maybe because of other things, the couple ended up separating around this time. And Janet said he was, quote, a mama's boy and wouldn't work, end quote. So um, her father ended up supporting the couple and then obviously Janet once they were separated and Janet had to take a job as a bookkeeper at a hardware store to make ends meet. So again, there's some sort of confusion as to when exactly they separated. At some other point, she told someone else that they had separated in April 1960 rather than August 1960. And she also said that they separated in April and they were actually divorced in April Mm. 1960. Again, not clear, couldn't find records Either way, they were for sure divorced at some point. You know, we have details of these big events that happen, but all that time in between, it gets kind of lost. So at some point, she ends up in Colorado. Not really sure why. But while in Colorado, she meets a man named Robert Charles Campano. Robert and Janet marry on June 2nd, 1961 in Denver. And she says that she married him partially because she wanted a father for her son. And... Indeed, on December 31st, 1961, Robert actually adopts Brett, and Brett actually changes his name to Robert Charles Campano Jr. when Robert adopted him. So his name, it wasn't just his last name change, they fully changed his whole name. During this marriage, she actually attended four months of a part-time school at the Parks School of Business in Denver, and she received a certificate from the school for completion of a legal secretary course, meaning she was actually a qualified legal secretary. So she's able to get a more, I don't want to say a better job, but perhaps a better paying job than, than just working at a hardware store or something like that. Nice. So, yeah. So then in February 1962, she goes down to Colorado Springs, Colorado to visit a girlfriend. And while there, she ends up cashing some bad checks. She claims that they were bad, not because they were forged, but because her husband pulled out all of her money from the bank. And this is from the authorities, quote, she doesn't understand how he did this since the checking count. And as far as she knew, he did not have the power of attorney or any authorization from her to draw out money, but that he did anyway, end quote. And so she was arrested on February 5th, 1962 for investigation of a no account check. So she was sentenced to pay costs of $7, which maybe was how much the check was for, because that's a random amount. And then she was also sentenced to 30 days in jail. And then once she was spent her time, she was released in Denver. And she ended up actually receiving a suspended sentence upon the condition that she make restitution for the check. She ended up not being able to make the restitution, so she ended up spending 45 days in jail. 
At the time of her arrest, Robert was actually in the Air Force, meaning Janet could use a government or military dependence card, which gave her benefits and privileges of active service members. And so because she used her card to cash the checks, which then got her arrested, Robert got in trouble and he was being held responsible for her behavior, which is, you know, sort of, he's the husband, he would be sort of in this time held responsible for her actions. He was very disappointed on being, quote, kicked out, end quote, because he loved the Air Force. But after 45 days, Janet was released from jail and she went back to live with Robert. And she did end up getting a job as a legal secretary for a group of lawyers, Martin and Sons, for about 10 months. And this actually would be her longest stint of work until her arrest in Idaho. So in September 1962, uh, about eight months after her arrest, uh, she and Robert separated because Robert told her he was filing for divorce and the divorce would be final in December. She Mm -hmm. claims she was the one who asked for the separation, saying it was because, quote, he is Italian and hot-tempered and got tired of his beating her and of his petty jealousies, that she is too independent to account of every second away from the house, end quote. She also said that she separated from him because Robert was irresponsible and drank to excess. So, regardless, not a great relationship at the end, so they get divorced. After this, she makes her way to Long Beach, California, where she gets involved with another man named Jerry Foster, who's a Navy man, and they start living together. So, you'll find this is a common pattern. She is a sucker for the uniform, as it were. Um, (laughs) And she ends up having a, a very long sort of career, I guess you could say, with uh, with servicemen, and then she gets involved with the service herself. And again, we'll get into that in a second. So, takes up with Jerry Foster, who's, who's working in the Navy, and in November 1962, which is just two months after he filed for divorce and a month before the divorce would be final, she finds out that she is pregnant. And she oh. says that she didn't want to marry for a second time because she was pregnant, and so, quote, I decided to run away, end quote. Huh. So she took 18 checks from what I'm assuming is a company called the Finance Corporation. I couldn't find out what that was and searching Finance Corporation. It's not going to get me anywhere. So um, thousands of. Right. (laughs) I'm assuming I don't know if she worked for them, if it was maybe someone that Jerry worked for. I don't know. But anyway, she took 18 checks from them, made them out to herself cashed them and bought a 1957 Ford convertible, took her son and left Long Beach. Oh, wow. That's so, a nice car, Dad. <laughs> yep. Yep. They're having a good time. A, a, a positive Thelma and Louise moment, if, as it were. Um, <laughs> so while on the trip, she's about 50 miles across the border of Arizona at Kingman, Arizona, and she realizes that she actually does love Jerry and she decides to turn around. So she's stopped by police in Needles, California, which is about 265 miles away from Long Beach. And so she is arrested on November 26, 1962, while three charges of forgery were investigated. Five days later, she was charged with two counts of forgery and booked under the name Janet Elaine Campano. The checks that she wrote were worth about $1,218, but some of the merchandise that checks had been paid for were recovered by the police. Um, One charge was for about $120 at Baffham's Marine, 
which I'm assuming, I don't know what she bought there, but that charge was dropped. And then the other two charges were also checks for about $120 together. One was cashed at the C.A. Mullenew Laurentide Finance Company and S&D Sales, and then the second check was cashed at the Freed Hair and Drug. Come to find out, she had actually worked for the Laurentide Finance Company before she absconded, so this may be who she took the checks from, that finance company. Jerry said that when he and Janet were living together, she was, quote, quite moody. She frequently went for walks on the beach just to be alone and think. She was very evasive in answering his questions and rather than lie to him, would just not answer. However, she was a good mother to her child and provided him with a very good home, end quote. Jerry said that if everything worked out, he did want to marry her. But while she was in jail, she suffered a miscarriage of Jerry's baby and, um... So she was then placed on probation on December 27th, 1962. So she really only ended up staying in jail for about a month. And, uh, and then oh, she was wow. put on probation. She then worked as a legal secretary for someone named Lynn Hawson. And she was tested and could type 97 words per minute and could take dictation <laughs> and speed writing at 90 words per minute. So she's very skilled. Um, yeah. She's just, you know, having some, some trouble. So then she absconds from probation on March 6, 1963. She left Long Beach on an airplane to Portland, Oregon after forging a check for over $100. And Janet said she didn't marry Jerry after she got probation because, quote, he beat on her both before and after, end quote, the arrest, and that she, quote, can't stand a man who beats on her, that she put up with it for 15 years with her father, end quote. I couldn't find evidence of her father being abusive physically abusive but you know of course we take her word for it you know we she knows her life better than we do and then she also stated she had no further interest in jerry once she left california once she gets to portland she gets a job working as a barmaid at the sportsman bar and grill and there she meets a man named michael brzezicki who was in the air force just like with all of her other military men, she hit it off with him and they married on March 26, 1963, which is less than three weeks after she arrives in Portland. Oh, wow. Yeah. Of course, she didn't tell him that she had absconded from supervision, that she forged a check, and that she would be wanted for forgery and violation of probation. Yeah. How does that come up in conversation? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you want to get married, those are maybe... I leave out that, like, I'm weirdly obsessed with old movies. She would leave out that she's on probation and has absconded from <laughs> supervision. It's normal things. So only a few weeks after their marriage, she gets in a pretty big fight with Michael and told him she was going to go back to Long Beach to get the rest of her belongings. And so she left her son with Michael and started driving. And as she's driving, she realizes she's going to be picked up by police if she goes to California. So... She changes courses and starts driving toward Laramie to visit her sister, Kathy. And then supposedly she's driving to Laramie and then she changes her mind yet again in Mountain Home, Idaho. And she realizes I should go back to Portland and like, you know, work things out. So she stops in Mountain Home. So we'll pause here. We'll talk about Mountain Home for a second. Um, this is actually mm -hmm. the history of Mountain Home is actually very interesting. So Mountain Home is in Elmore County in southwest Idaho, about 45 miles south of Boise. 
And of course, the area where Mountain Home currently is was home to the Shoshone Bannock people. And from here in this area, they camped on the banks of the Snake River, especially during the winter, where they harvested camas root, which was integral to the tribe's diet. Then in 1863 and 1868, the Fort Bridger Treaty established the Fort Hall Reservation further southeast near Blackfoot, and so members of the tribe were moved from their ancestral lands to there. In the 1840s through the 1860s, pioneers moving west to Oregon and California passed through Elmore County, and then with the discovery of gold in Idaho in the 1860s, the area started to see more permanent settlement, including in Elmore County and the Mountain Home area. Then in 1864, a stagecoach station named Rattlesnake Station was founded by a man named Ben Holliday as a stop on the Overland Stage Line, a stagecoach and wagon trail between Walla Walla, Washington and Salt Lake City, Utah. In the summer of 1864, Holliday filed for 320 acres under the Homestead Act along Rattlesnake Creek, which is where, of course, Rattlesnake Station gets its name. Then in 1872, Commodore William Jackson, who was an early employee of Rattlesnake Station, acquired the property and ran it for three years. In 1870, the Northwestern Stage Company acquired the Overland Line, which made Rattlesnake Station a stop for its weekly stage line from Boise to South Boise Mines, and, uh, and then it became an overnight stop in 1875. So originally you would just stop there, water your horses, get up on supplies, but then they made it sort of an overnight stop. In October 1875, a correspondent for the Owyhee Avalanche spent the night at Rattlesnake Station, and here's what he had to say, quote, I have changed the name of the station where I have been sojourning since noon yesterday from Rattlesnake Station to Bedbug Station. There are no rattlesnakes <laughs> here, but an abundance of other animals, and hence the necessity for the change, which will be appreciated and understood by all who have had occasion to sojourn here one night, end quote. Now, not everyone agreed with this because there was a reply in the Idaho Daily Statesman just a few days later. Quote, the name or designation of Bedbug Station give it to it, given to it by the Avalanche, we are authorized to say by numerous gentlemen who have put at this house, is a fabrication out of whole cloth and that no house in the territory is furnished with better beds or is more neatly kept than this station by its present proprietors. End quote. So it's like an early Yelp review. Like yeah, maybe. totally. <laughs> that or maybe the, you know, owners of the Owyhee Avalanche or something had, you know, something against the owners or, you know, whatever. Yeah. So in 1876, a post office named Mountain Home was established at Rattlesnake Station. And William A. Goulder, a traveler for the Daily Statesman, wrote in February 1877, quote, A post office has been established here with the name of Mountain Home, but as yet there is not service, as no one is willing to serve the county in the capacity of postmaster, end quote. Hmm. Um, then, in September 1878, as Goulder was passing through the area again, he remarked, quote, The mountain home is really a very pleasant home near the mountains. A few more years, when trees have had time to attain a fuller growth, it will be one of the coziest little spots on the road, end quote. On October 12, 1878, Rattlesnake Station suffered from a fire that destroyed the stable, barn, and coach house. They lost one coach, 10 horses, 25 tons of hay, 1,700 pounds of grain, and also all of the western-bound mail, and the loss was estimated at $6,000. The buildings were rebuilt, and the station and the Mountain Home Post Office remained. Then about five years later, in 1883, the Oregon Short Line Railroad was completed and the post office was moved, dragged by mule team, about eight miles southwest of Rattlesnake Station to be closer to the railroad. It ended up keeping the name Mountain Home and thus became the current site of the town, Mountain Home. 
Rattlesnake Station remained, servicing stagecoaches running between Mountain Home and Rocky Bar, which was about 70 miles away, until 1914 as stagecoaches became obsolete, which I did not know that we would have had stagecoaches as late as 1914. But, um, you know, it is Idaho and Mm -hmm. this is all rural. And anyway, so as communities in the area, including Mountain Home grew, residents began pushing for a new county with a centrally located seat because it had originally been part of Alturas County. In the last act as a territorial legislature, the legislators created Elmore County on February 7, 1889, after seven years of debate. The county seat was originally Rocky Bar and then Haley, but then in 1891, Mountain Home became the official county seat on February 4, 1891. In the years between the founding and World War One, the area became a big agricultural producer, especially for wool, that produced soldiers' uniforms. The 1920s and the Great Depression brought agricultural busts and economic conditions that would remain down until World War II, which, of course, we see across the country. Then World War II brought improved crop prices and construction plans developed for an army base in Mountain Home in November 1942, and the Mountain Home Army Air Force Base opened on August 7, 1943. When World War II ended two years later, the base reverted to a B-24 bomber training site, and then on October 1945, which was soon after the war ended, the base was placed on inactive status and remained so until December 1948. In 1947, the U.S. Air Force was established as an independent branch of the U.S. Armed Forces, and so the Mountain Home Army Airfield was renamed the Mountain Home Air Force Base. The Air Force Base had a huge impact on the community, and it became the largest employer in the county, and the influx of military personnel resulted in rapid growth of the population, which, of course, is to be expected. Between 1950 and 1960, the control of the base was passed through several commands and hosted several trainings for important weapons. I am not a military person, and so all of that information doesn't mean much to me. But if you're interested in knowing, you know, what they've been training out there and what weapons and who have been in command, you can check out the Mountain Home Air Force Base history page at mybaseguide.com. To give you an example of how important this uh, Air Force Base was to the growth of the population, between 1950 and 1960, the population in Mountain Home jumped from 1,887 to 5,984. Um, Since then, Mountain Home has remained a pleasant place to live, and the population continued to grow through 2010. And so the 2010 population was 14,206, and the 2019 estimate held steady at 14,562. So, a bit of a Mountain Home rabbit hole there. But, back to Janet. So, Janet lands, as it were, in Mountain Home in June 1963, and at that point, the population is hovering around 6,000. So while she's in Mountain Home, she realizes she wants to go back to Michael in Oregon, and she calls him on the phone to tell him so. And she has about $28 with her, which in 2020 is about $236. And for whatever reason, she didn't think that was going to be enough money to get her back to Oregon. So on 10 p.m. on May 7, 1963, she enters an establishment called the Royal Hotel, where a man and a woman, Mr. and Mrs. Pedro Kemborain, were working. She originally asked for a room, and so Mr. Kemborain showed her a room, and she said she would take it. So she paid $20, and she signed the guest registry. She came back a few minutes later, and using a 22 caliber pistol bought in Pendleton, Oregon, she proceeds to rob them. 
She told them to hand over their money, which was about $53 or $448 in 2020, and she ties their hands and feet with cloth belts or silk stockings and told them not to move for 15 minutes and then locked the bedroom door where they were. Mr. Kimberain said, reported to the police that she seemed just as scared as they were and that the gun was very shaky in her hand. She started driving back to Oregon immediately, and she was noted as wearing a leopard skin coat and a yellow bandana, which is the least conspicuous outfit ever. (laughs) Great way to blend in right (laughs) there. Yep. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) A mountain home policeman, Ronald Baird, remembered seeing her at a drive-in movie earlier that day. And according to the Herald Bulletin in Burley... They said, quote, for no apparent reason except curiosity, he noted her license plate, end quote, which I think is weird, but okay. She was stopped just after midnight when she hit a roadblock at Boise because of this license plate notation, and the gun was found on her, and she admitted that it was loaded with one chamber empty, but the hammer of the gun hadn't been cocked at the time that she was holding up this couple. And so she was brought before the court in Ada County on June 6, 1963, and she pleaded guilty to the crime of robbery. Now, the crime should have been brought to court in Elmore County rather than in Ada County, because Elmore County is where Mount Home is located. But she had previously waived her right to be sentenced in Elmore, and so she appeared in Ada County in Boise instead. And she received an indeterminate sentence not to exceed 15 years by Judge Homer H. Budge. She entered the penitentiary on that same day, June 6, 1963. And so here is her intake form. Elmore County, race, white, sex, female, of course, age 20, height 64 inches, so she's about 5'4", weight 150, which is very close to my build, which really is only helpful for Anthony and anyone who knows me. Her eyes are blue. Her hair is brown, but it's notated that it's dyed blonde. Her complexion is fair. Military record, never. Occupation, legal secretary. Her marital status is married and she has one child and it notes that she was married and divorced twice before the child is by her first marriage. Uh, Her education is 11th grade. She also took business school for legal secretary courses. It is also noted that she has a hold for the police department in Long Beach, California. And so the administration in Idaho are to notify the Long Beach Police Department 30 days prior to her release. That's the first hold. And then there's a second hold for the sheriff's office in Los Angeles, California. And that is probably for her absconding from parole. Her Bertillion notes a half an inch scar in the middle of her forehead. Her teeth are good. She has a vaccination scar. And then she's also got several scars on her back and then the backsides of both of uh, her arms. And it's noted, quote, several scars in suicide attempt, end quote. But That's the only time that we ever hear about a suicide attempt. Mm -hmm. Um, A family survey is filled out by her father, received after Janet entered the Idaho State Penitentiary, and it stated that after Janet left, Michael Brzezicki took Robert Jr. to Pittsburgh, where his family lived. And so in June uh, 1963, perhaps just before her court date or before she entered the state penitentiary, she called her father, Edwin, to tell him what happened and this was the first time that her family had heard from her since early 1962 which was probably at around the time of her arrest in Colorado and Michael had taken Robert Jr. who was known as Bobby to Pittsburgh where Michael's parents lived 
And so Edwin flew to Pittsburgh to take Bobby off Mike's hands, saying, quote, I intend to raise Bobby as my grandson. Bobby is happy with us and receiving good care, end quote. Hmm. He also said, quote, I would appreciate if I could obtain a schedule of visitation periods and correspondent rules so that I might write to her and visit her. At this distance, it is difficult to determine just how often her mother and I could make the trip, but we are both interested in her welfare, end quote. When Janet entered, 10 women were already there, and all but three of them were in for forgery or insufficient funds checks. So again, that really leads us to see how common of a crime this was. Um, Another inmate entered on the exact same day and then one the very next day, and so that brought the total to 13 inmates within one day of her entrance. Three more would enter by the end of the year, and only one left, and so... That is 15 total, which is technically one over full capacity. Wow. That's Um, a cramped little cell house. Yep. And as I said, she had two holds from California placed on her, one at Long Beach for the forgery charges and one at Los Angeles for absconding. And both would be exercised when her time at the Idaho State Penitentiary was up. She stated upon her intake that she, quote, realized the importance of education and plans to take the general education development test high school level while here, end quote. And she would start to prepare to take those exams to receive her high school equivalency certificate or, of course, her GED. And she did just that. So she's very smart and she wants to get an education and she really wants to better her life. Now, interestingly, she also took several correspondence classes from the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago through the Salvation Army as well. But it doesn't seem that she got any certificate of anything in that. She was very, very well behaved while she was in prison. And she, of course, did the usual housekeeping and gardening and sewing. She acted as a teacher for several fellow inmates. Uh, She taught them writing and typing and sort of general office procedures. Because, again, she does have that legal secretary experience. And then she worked for the prison training officer, uh, Mr. Abrams, who also would be a future warden. And she took dictation and did typing for him, and she did really well in that job. Matron Lulu Rowan said of Janet, quote, This inmate, when she first came here, had a very bad outlook on everything. However, when she was asked to help by writing the women's world in the clock and teach the girls, her attitude changed completely. Now she looks forward to the time she leaves as she feels she has bettered herself since she has been here. Janet has been cooperative in all assignments given her. She has helped others in the schoolwork and acting as teacher. She has cooked, baked, taken up knitting and hobbies while confined. She is also teaching a class in speed writing to train another girl to take over for her job for Mr. Abrams, end quote. Mm-hmm. And as we heard in that, starting in July 1964, Janet became the editor of the women's page of The Clock, which was the inmate newspaper, and it was called The Women's World. And uh, she would serve as editor until May 1965. And I want to give a shout out to Haley Noble for finding these for me because they are very helpful. So the first thing that she wrote as an editor was, quote, In this month's edition, we bid goodbye to another one of our girls. By some small coincidence, she just happened to be our women's editor. Therefore, Tuffy, who is another inmate, and they gave each other nicknames. And so we don't know fully who this is. And she says, and I shall try to replace her. Please bear with us, end quote. Uh-huh. I think that Tuffy was Darlene May Shields, who was in for grand larceny. But again, the newspaper tended to use nicknames, and she would actually go by the nickname Jan. So let me read some of her very fun creative writing pieces. She's actually a very fun writer. 
So this is the women's word. One of them says, quote, it seems as though there is something different going on each month. Last month, there was painting of our building. This month, there was the picking of beans and cutting of cucumbers. The crews ranged from four to eight with the women often outdoing the men. And then in parentheses, mm-hmm. quote, it says, editor's note, I shouldn't be surprised at all, at all, at all. Um, then this is one of my favorites so it is a a piece titled lost and found lost one perfectly good cub scout ring in the bean field if found please return to judy a who along with me is co-champion pinochle player of isp's female division she needs it desperately for her pinochle signals also lost two tempers in good condition if found please return to bobby and dorothy they lost them in the vicinity of the championship pinochle game Note, we were also voted the champ fibbers of the women's ward. The vote was unanimous, but only because they wouldn't let us vote. (laughs) And then she says, we said goodbye to Claire last month, and we say so long to Dorothy this time. This will make the total population our section 10. We 10, however, make metropolis in our own right. Oh, brother, what corn. That's great. Yeah. And then, so this is a comment on uh, sort of the population of the women's ward. She says, here we are again with the voice of the women. Help. What, oh, are they going to do with all of us? Our building can comfortably house about 10, and we now have 16 and are on the way for more. Then what? Hang them on hooks, I guess. But what? But we can look on the bright side of things. April, pardon and parole board meetings, both. What a beautiful month. There are six of us appearing, so close your eyes, cross your fingers, and hope for the best. And then this is it's a little bit long, so bear with me, but it gives a really good image of the women's word, which, again, we don't get very often. And so she says, quote, I have been asked to write the women's view of the need for a new penitentiary. We talked it over, the gals and I. We really don't have too many ideas, just know that we need one. The present women's ward is a small building consisting of one center day room, a kitchen, laundry room, and seven small cells, sometimes occupied by more than the design capacity of one person. At the present time, there are 11 women here. We do our own cooking and laundry, and we keep up the appearance of the building. That's all. There are few work details here other than the routine. What is there to do the rest of the day? Nothing. Some of us are fortunate enough to be able to do some handiwork and spend a great deal of time knitting and crocheting. Some of us write, and then there are those who do nothing. Our day room serves as a dining room, school room, a typing room, a TV room, a living room for two of the girls, and an ironing room. Not a day goes by without an argument of some kind. We need room to get off each other's nerves. We need some of the rehabilitation programs that we read about in the penitentiary newspapers and magazines from around the country. We need something to get us ready to return to the society we so much want to be a part of. Sadly, many of the girls who come here have no way of improving themselves and getting ready for that release when it comes. We need more matrons, and here we have some difference of opinion, more rigid enforcement of the rules. We hope that the legislature approves whatever is necessary in the way of laws and money to pave the way for a new penitentiary. The women's ward is old, and yet newer than many parts of the present institution. In writing this, I have not only put down my views, but some of the other girls' suggestions. They were a lot of help. I'll give you a sample. The other night, after lockup, I said something about the new prison, and the conversation went something like this. You want to know what a new pen should be like? No, just why you think Idaho should have one. They should run this place like the army. No, they should. Sure they should. It's... And so the conversation went. I do not want anyone telling me when to wash my hair or wash my face or comb my hair or brush my teeth. All that's the matter is this old joint's just too soft. What we need is space. Thanks, girls. With luck, knock on wood, none of us will be here to live in whatever new institution is built. We do, however, wish for it to be soon. This one is inadequate. Mm. 
So I think that's a great piece. And is not only advocating for, you know, the women's ward, but she also brings up the penitentiary and says, this is actually, this is old, but it's a lot newer than, you know, what the men have inside. So on October 6, 1964, her sentence was commuted to six years. And so she was to be paroled on June 7, 1965, subject to good behavior and, of course, her detainers in California. In February 1965, the prison got a letter from Michael's legal officer saying that Michael intended to get a divorce, but would wait until she was out so she could help pay for it. She stated that Michael was definitely not in her future marital plans, that she had no intention of trying to reconcile with him. On March 11th, an incident report was actually filed against Janet by Matron Rowan. Quote, This morning I took mailing privileges away from Janet E. Brzezicki for disobedience. The cat, which is allowed in the women's ward for mousing, started out toward the gate just as I did. Brzezicki picked up the cat, stating, Susan, you can't go out. I told her to let the cat go, as she would come back when she was ready. Brzezicki did not put the cat down. I repeated the order to let the cat go. At this time, she deliberately put the cat inside the ward. I told this inmate that when I give an order, it is to be obeyed, consequently the loss of her mailing privileges for two weeks, end quote. As far as I could tell, this was her only incident of misbehavior while incarcerated. Then, on March 27, 1964, a really interesting letter arrives at the penitentiary, and it says, quote, Dear Sir, you probably don't know who I am, but this letter is to do with one of the inmates that you have there. And there's a ton of type, like a ton of typos and stuff like that in this. So, this person's name is Janet Elaine Brzezicki, registered number 11297. I've been looking for her for around seven months, and no one seemed to know where she was at. I finally received a letter from her and was so happy that it wasn't funny. See, Jan and I were very close, and more so than most people thought. In fact, if I had had my way about it someday, I would marry her. She probably thinks that I have forgotten all about it and that I don't care to know what is happening to her one way or the other. I would also like to have you find out for me more about David Joseph that she wrote to me about. This is supposed to be her child. If there is anything that I can do for you or her, For her, I would be delighted to know if you would just say the word. I get out of the Navy in 29 days and would like to come and see her if that would be all possible. See, sir, I need Jan as bad as she needs me. Also, I would like to know how long she has to do and if that is all right with you. In fact, I would be very happy if you would tell me all the information that you could. Well, I guess I better close and I hope you will tell Jan that you have heard from me. Also, I would like to come and have a talk to you as soon as I get out of the service. Thank you for your time and I hope that I have not been any trouble to you. End quote. And it was signed by David Joseph Strittmatter. And so authorities go to her and they give her the letter and they say, who is this guy? And so it turns out that in the first part of 1963 at Long Beach, they ended up living together, she and David, but David was still married and she ended up getting pregnant by him, but she left him and she ended up miscarrying. But he thought that she'd had the baby and that she named it after him. Oh my gosh. And she wrote him to ask him to send her a few of her belongings. And he asked about the child and she told him the truth, but he didn't believe her. And so he wrote the warden asking about this child. And she told the authorities that she had no interest in David Joseph Strip Matter. And so this is the last that we hear from him. Huh. 
So Janet was to be paroled in June 1965, but the parole was subject to the detainers in California, and authorities expected the detainers to be used by both the Long Beach and Los Angeles County Sheriff offices. She waived extradition and was willing to serve her time in California if she needed. If the detainers were dropped and she was granted regular parole, she said she would go to Laramie, Wyoming to visit her parents and son for a few weeks, then return to Boise to, quote, get a fresh start here when she knows no one in the outside community, end quote. And she was discharged from the penitentiary on June 7, 1965, and a representative of Los Angeles County Police picked her up to take her to face charges of forgery in California. In the month before her release, she wrote one last editorial as the editor of the Women's Ward in the Clock, and it is titled Adieu. Quote, for the past 10 months, I have been editor and correspondent for the Women's Division, and now the time has come for me to bid you a fond farewell. Due to the short remaining portion of my sentence, this will be the last month that I will be with you via the clock. I take this opportunity to introduce to you the new editor, Virginia Mahoney, who has been working with me for this issue to familiarize herself with the way it's all done. Hello, Jean. I also want to take this opportunity to thank all of the staff of the clock for the help they have given me and for the patience and consideration they have given me during my association with the clock. Thank you very much, guys, and thank you to the readers who made all of this possible. It is something I will never forget. Good luck, and God bless you all. Um, Janet wrote the probation board in California asking about information on what to do about her extradition, and she learned that, like, nothing was really certain, that she would be brought before the court, and after this appearance, they would decide whether she would be sent to the California Institution for Women in Corona or Chino, California, or if something else would be done. The only information that I could find in her file about the California detainers was that she was held by Los Angeles, and so I'm not sure if the Long Beach detainer ended up being dropped, um, mm-hmm. or if they... I, I really couldn't find anything on the Long Beach detainer. It seems as if she appeared in front of the Los Angeles court and was actually sentenced to probation for a time. She did not have to serve any jail time as far as I could tell. Wow. Yeah. And so I don't know if it's because she was so well-behaved, if she was really making strides to turn her life around. She was getting an education. Mm -hmm. She And I think also because she was willing to serve in California. Like, she was willing to – she really had matured at this point, you know, willing to do what she needed to do. So then in early June 1965, Janet wrote Warden Clapp, quote, I am writing in regard to my parole from Idaho. I have tried to find out how I am expected to report. I have asked and have been told not to worry about it. I do. It says I am to report to a parole officer within so many hours after getting here, but I've not seen one. Also that I am required to report once a month. I have been gone one month today. Am I supposed to report directly to you by mail or what? I do not intend to violate my parole and would appreciate any information you may be able to give me to help straighten this out. End quote. <laughs> and Warden Clapp's reply was actually insanely unhelpful. He basically just said like, I told you that you got all the necessary information, so like good luck. Oh. I don't know. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, he could be pretty blunt. I was just like, if I were her, I would be so frustrated. I'd be like, I don't know what that means. So it ends up that she was allowed to return to Laramie on her parole on July 24th, 1965, to live with her parents and her son. And so while she's there, she secures a job at the Bowl Bowling Alley in Laramie and was scheduled to start on August 16th. And she planned to work at this job until a vacancy opened in the school district secretarial department. 
About eight months later, another was report with some less than stellar news. Quote, Mr. Kildow, who is her father, advises that he wishes to discontinue custody and or responsibility of the above named for several reasons. Subject has failed to support her dependent, a seven-year-old son, even though her salary has been 400 to $500 per month. It has been necessary for the grandparents to provide food and clothing for the child. She has been employed at Rancher's Gas Supply for four months without posting a bond. Since a bond is required at this company, and since the subject cannot obtain same due to prior record, it is likely she will lose this job in the near future. Subject has entertained men in her apartment, allowing the men to stay overnight. This is not only undesirable for her as a parolee, it is also a poor influence for her small son. In view of above, it would appear this placement is no longer favorable, end quote. And so I, I try to figure out what this posting bond meant. I've never heard of having to like post a bond to get a job. And so I looked it up and I I think it is this thing called the Federal Bonding Program, which provides basically fidelity bonds for quote unquote at risk or like hard to place job seekers. And so basically the bond covers the employer and any potential lost wages for six months of employment at no cost for either the employer or the applicant. Um, So now it seems to be geared toward previous inmates but it didn't seem that it was like necessarily the case when it first came out in 1966 i had a hard time figuring out like the history of it but now it is definitely geared toward inmates who get out and are trying to find a job just an extra hurdle for people with records right yeah Um, so I'm not really sure what happened in response to this recommendation. She was actually granted a final discharge from parole uh, on October 27th, 1966. She requested a full pardon in January 1967, but the board denied that. So then I lose track of her for about 10 years, but we find her again in 1976. We learned that despite the threat that Michael was going to divorce her, they remained married. And they actually had two more boys, one born in 1965-1966-ish and then one around 1969 and then Janet and Michael divorced in January 1974 in Clark County, Nevada. After the divorce, she moved back to Wyoming with her boys and there she hoped to join the Army National Guard. The problem was, of course, that she had a criminal record and she had only been granted a final discharge from parole and not a pardon. At one point, she worked for the Air National Guard in Cheyenne, but was discharged because of her felony record. And so it seems like when she was first employed by the National Guard two years before, her felony record was waived. But apparently, in 1976, a new law was passed and made it so that a conviction of a felony could not be waived. But the Army said, we will rehire you if you can get a pardon for your crime. So her first course of action, which I don't think was necessarily an unreasonable one, was to actually write the president, Gerald Ford. Um, And (laughs) this is what her letter says. It says, Dear Mr. President, please bear with me as this is a most difficult letter to write, especially to the president of the United States. I have never written a letter to such an important man before. This letter is of the utmost importance, but only to myself. You must receive many hundreds of these types of letters, but please, sir, read me out before you toss it aside. I have no other way to turn, and you are the only one in the world who can help me. Whether you will or not is a different matter, but please, sir, I am begging you to look into the matter after you have read this. I realize that you are a very busy man and do not have much time for things like this, but I must try anyway, as this is a matter of my entire future and that of my children. 
12 years ago, when I was just 20 years old, I got into some trouble with the police. I was young and not experienced or trained to handle the world. I realize that this is no excuse, and I am not trying to make excuses. I paid for what I did with two years of my life. Does this have to follow me for the rest of my life? Since then, I have settled down and am trying to raise three sons, of whom I am very proud. Mr. President, I have lived a good, peaceful life in and for society. I have tried so hard to make up for what I did so long ago. Um, yeah. And, and then further down in the letter, it states that she comes from a quote, very old military family end quote, and having had family serve in world war one and world war two in both the army and the air force. And even her oldest son, Robert was aiming to earn a nomination of the air force Academy. And he was a member of the civil air patrol and a junior ROTC cadet. So she ended up getting a reply, not from the president himself, but from his office that said appealing to the state from whom she needed the pardon was going to be a way to get the pardon rather than from the president. So she writes the Idaho Board of Pardons asking for a full pardon. She writes, Dear Sirs, please accept this as my application for the pardon and parole board meeting in July 1976. I am sure that you can see from my records just what my problem was. If you could please review my records and consider a pardon for me. I am enclosing various papers and letters for your consideration, which includes an entire file I obtained when trying to join the National Guard. May I please explain my situation to you? I'm the mother of three boys, ages 16, 9, and 7, a picture of which I am enclosing. My oldest one just graduated from high school last month. I joined the Army National Guard the 13th of November, 1975, and have just recently attained a job as a full-time technician. My entire future and my job depends on a pardon for my offense 13 years ago. Without it, I will have to get out of the Guard and cannot keep my job as it is accepted civil service. Please, sirs, I have lost several jobs because of my past, not because of my ability or work qualifications or experience, but because of my felony conviction, and the same will happen again without a pardon. With this job, I have security, a generous means of supporting my children, and the most important reason of all, a retirement when I can no longer work. I am slated to attend basic training the 18th of July. Please help me with this, as the guard means everything to me. I wrote the president and received the enclosed letter from the U.S. pardon attorney, affording me that I had written to the wrong person. I should, in fact, write to you, gentlemen. Please consider the papers I am enclosing, and I hope you will consider a pardon for my crime. I am 13 years older, and I feel wiser and more mature. I am very sorry for what happened and wish I could counsel other young people on not messing up their lives when they are young, as I did mine. It follows you the rest of your life. Please do not make me suffer with mine any longer. It is my understanding that it was possible to get a waiver in the Guard in cases such as mine, but find now after working for the Guard that this is not true. If you do not feel I deserve a complete pardon, would you please consider a conditional one just for the purpose of military service? Thank you for any considerations you may extend to me. In her file, about nine letters from various employers and family members attested to Janet's good attitude, hard work, and skills in the jobs that she worked for them. But sadly, she wasn't able to get her pardon in time, and on June 12, 1976, she was honorably discharged from the Army as Private First Class. Then, sadly, you know, two months later, after her discharge, on August 3, 1976, Janet Elaine Brzezicki, she was granted a full and unconditional pardon by the state of Idaho from uh, Idaho Commission for Pardons and Parole. And so hopefully her discharge was temporary after she received this pardon and she was able to get her job back. But I could not find if that was true. So then the last definitive bit that I could find about Janet's life I found some public records that placed her at the Wyoming Women's Correctional Facility in 1993. If she was in prison again, obviously this would not be information that I was privy to. 
this is one of those public records that just has like a list of places. So she was maybe all of these was in Apache Junction, Arizona in 1996, Green Bay, Wisconsin in 2016, Mesa, Arizona between 2001 and 2017, Phoenix, Arizona between 2012 and 2020, and Mesquite, Texas between 2016 and 2020. Huh. I'm not sure if all of these are her because there were other la- names listed on this public information record and the names listed are Jane E. Kildow and Elaine J. Kildow. I never found record of her using these other names but these are very reasonable versions of her name so Mm -hmm. not totally sure and that is the end where my you know my research of janet came to an end i could not find death records um, or anything like that it is very possible that she's still alive because as of february 2021 when i wrote this she would be about 78 years old so it is quite quite possible that she's still out there and if for whatever reason this gets to her i hope she knows that i have nothing but the utmost respect for her she did a phenomenal job of accepting you know what she did and turning her life around and getting involved in the army and you know raising her sons you know in the best that she could and she you know I think went on to live a a good life. And so I gained a lot of respect for her in doing this very thorough research. And so that is uh, our Janet Elaine Brzezicki. That was great, Sky. Nice work. Nice research. Thanks. Wow. That's nice to have a good story, too. I feel like we've had some dark ones the last Mm -hmm. couple episodes. So Mm -hmm. it's good to have like some positive insights, some rehabilitation going on and people changing and turning their lives around for the better yeah excellent Oof. whoa well thank you everybody for sticking in and i hope it uh brightens your day you learned a lot i certainly learned a lot like mountain home i didn't know much I history know. about that place i thought it sprung up around the air force base i didn't mm-hmm. realize there was so much more before that so. rattlesnake station <laughs> yeah yeah and what was that bug uh, uh bed, bed bug, bug station <laughs> Yes. That's hilarious. I'll have to think about that next time I go to Haley. Or... <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, well, All right, Sky. What an episode. Thanks for listening. Do your own time. Do your own number. See you next week. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And new this season, we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod. 